I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, and this morning I will be reading verses 20 through 36. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please give it your attention. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I was sitting in my office preparing for this message yesterday morning, and I came across this paragraph in one of the commentaries I was reading by Bruce Milne. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, Christian faith is Easter faith. In this connection, it's astonishing to reflect that there have been interpretations of Christianity claiming genuine validity which have tried to limit the message and significance of Jesus to his moral teaching and to reduce his kingdom, quote-unquote, to the ethical principles within his teaching. In other words, they attempted to conclude the ministry of Jesus at the beginning of the Holy Week, eliminate the resurrection, and permit no significance to the cross beyond its being an outstanding example of self-giving love. 
What is even more astonishing is that such unbiblical and fallacious versions of Christianity are still embraced at times within the churches. Now, when I read that paragraph in that commentary, I was immediately saddened and, quite honestly, a little angry. Because it was only just about an hour earlier that I was sitting at my kitchen table eating my breakfast and reading the Morning Center Daily Times. And there on the front page, there was an article about the different Good Friday services that had taken place around the area. And in that article, as I read through it, it was describing the state college community Good Friday service, which was held and organized by eight of the major downtown churches. And in the article, I was surprised they actually took time to summarize one of the messages given by one of the preachers during that Good Friday service. And let me just give you that summary. First of all, her, her, message, her message was on the uh, washing of the feet, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, and then she alluded to him standing before Pilate the next day. And this is the actual quote from her sermon. This is her application of that, what she called a parable. Her application was this. She said the lesson applies today as this Jesus that we follow is dying again and again and again everywhere in the faces of the poor and the homeless in the war zones of our cities and in places like Syria, Iraq, and Nigeria. We, you and I, we can wash our hands in the basin of safety and security or We can roll up our sleeves and get our hands clean with care and compassion. Like Pilate, you and I, we have a choice. That is no gospel. That is no good news. And God have mercy upon us in State College if that's the message that we're hearing in churches this weekend around the area. It's interesting that Bruce Milne in that commentary said that so many who preach and teach in churches want to end the story of Jesus at the beginning of Holy Week. I pointed out last week that we've been studying the Gospel of John all these many weeks and months, and we've gotten to chapter 12, out of 21 chapters, and we are at the beginning of the Holy Week. John spends half of his gospel, half of his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ talking about the Holy Week. And I was really struck by what Jesus says in the passage this morning about this hour. I'm remembering how back when he went to the wedding in Cana and his mother Mary came to him and really was hinting strongly that he should solve their problem of not having enough wine at the wedding by doing something spectacular, some miracle to impress the crowd. And you remember what he said to Mary. He said, my hour has not yet come. Later on, we saw how Jesus' brothers came to him during one of the earlier feasts in Jerusalem, earlier in his ministry, And they tried to encourage him to go up to Jerusalem and make an appearance and make a splash and do some miracles. And Jesus replied to his brothers by saying, 
My time has not yet come. We've read earlier on two occasions that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, which were hostile to Jesus and his ministry, tried twice to arrest him, and it says that they were not successful, quote-unquote, because his hour had not yet come. And now I'm struck by the fact that Jesus himself says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's what the Holy Week was about. That was the week when Jesus Christ was glorified. That's when Jesus Christ accomplished his mission and his purpose. It's interesting to me what provokes this response from Jesus. Something, again, that we would have never noticed if we had been noticing all the spectacular things going on during Holy Week. Who would have noticed? But John points out that a group of Greeks had approached Jesus indirectly about having a time to meet with him. And that's what provokes Jesus to give this emotional response to the fulfillment of his mission. Now, when we read Greeks there, what John is referring to is what we would call God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles who did not, they were, they were actually drawn to the worship and the lifestyle of the Jewish people. They, no doubt, being Greeks, were pretty fed up with, and from our vantage point, it's pretty easy to see why they'd be fed up with their Greek gods the Greek religions, all the weird and bizarre things that supposedly went on among their gods and all the weird philosophies that came out of that and all the weird ethics. They were fed up with that Greek from their Greek culture and background, and so they were drawn to the one true creator God who provides for all people and who is the judge of all mankind. And they were drawn to the beautiful, clear morality that was based in Old Testament law. And so they would come and they would worship. They'd even come up to the feast, as we see here, to worship with the Jews. But they weren't ready yet, at least, to become proselytes. Proselytes would be those who became circumcised and fully uh, embraced all of the rituals and and activities of of the Jewish faith. They weren't proselytes. They were God-fearers. They were drawn, but not yet committed. And so they had come up to this feast of the Passover with all these hundreds of thousands of people. And they would be able to worship with the Jews, but only in, they were only allowed to get into the, what they called the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court of the temple, on the outskirts of the people gathering to worship. And this is a group. There's a group among these Greeks, among these God-fearers, who came not to Jesus, interestingly, but to Philip. And we don't know why they chose Philip among all the 12 disciples, but a good possibility is because Philip is actually a Greek name. Most of the... Most of the disciples went by their Jewish name or Hebrew name. Philip is a Greek name, and so maybe that's why they singled him out and said he might be sympathetic to our cause. So they went to Philip, and what's interesting is is that Philip was unsure about how Jesus would receive these Greeks, as they themselves obviously were. And so Philip goes to Andrew, and again, Andrew, interestingly, is the only other of the disciples who's primarily known by his Greek name, not his Hebrew name. And so Philip and Andrew then take their request to Jesus. But what's what's with the hesitancy? 
Why did they wonder whether Jesus would be receptive to meeting with them? Well, it may go very well go back to many things Jesus had said during his ministry. Remember back when, in uh, Matthew 10 when he sent the apostles out to do ministry, he instructed them this way. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember when the Canaanite woman came to Jesus herself and she begged for her daughter to be healed. Jesus said to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Interestingly, he did heal her daughter as she persisted in faith. But what Jesus is underlining there is that the gospel did come first to the Jews. And Jesus and their disciples, their focus of their ministry was to the Jewish people. But Jesus promised that soon it would go well beyond the borders of Israel. Remember when he marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion back in Matthew chapter 8. This Roman centurion came to Christ again for healing and he it was for healing for his servant and it, this is what Jesus says when he marvels at the faith of the centurion. He says in uh, Matthew 8 beginning in verse 10, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And we're also reminded of just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talked about being the shepherd of his sheep. And in chapter 10, beginning in verse 15, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so Jesus hinted throughout his ministry that even though he was sent to the lost house of Israel, soon the barriers would be broken down, the wall of separation would be taken away, and that soon people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every race would come into the kingdom. And I believe, based on Jesus' reaction here, that it's a vision of that great event that fills Jesus with deep joy as he hears of this request from a small group of Greeks. He sees those Greeks as a foretaste of a great ingathering to come. In Hebrews chapter 12, It says that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him. Jesus was able to endure the wrath of God upon our sins as he hung on the cross because he had a vision of joy before him. And that's the vision of joy that I want to focus on this morning. That's what sustained him as he hung on the cross. And it's the joy of the harvest. Jesus looks at these Greek seekers and he sees them as the trickle of water that's coming through the hole in the dike that is a precursor to a massive flood of people being drawn to the Lord through the gospel from every tribe and nation. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Another little parable 
that described his own calling and mission and purpose. His mission and purpose was to die. Jesus is saying very clearly that if he does not die, he remains alone. The only human being who ever lived a righteous life and is worthy to live in eternal fellowship with God. Unless he died, he would remain alone. But if he dies, his death will bring about much fruit, a great harvest. The 21st 21st century church needs to hear this. Jesus' wisdom, as great as it was, Jesus' ethics and his morality, as pure and admirable as it was, even his example of incredible self-sacrifice, all of that is worthless to the Greeks and to us if his death was not an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died on the cross looking at the harvest that was to come. And that harvest was not just people saved from God's wrath, but it was a transformed, fruitful people. That's what he saw. In that great passage in Isaiah 53 where it talks about in great detail, prophetically, the details of Christ's hideous crucifixion. It has this verse in the middle of that chapter. Listen to what it says in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. As his soul was being offered up as a guilt offering, as a sin offering, he saw his offspring, the church. And this church in his vision, is a beautiful, glorious, obedient, righteous people. That's what he saw. That's the kind of life he would bring. It's a, it's a death to this world, but a life to him. That's why after in verse, um, in, in the verse where he talks about dying himself, the very next verse talks about our death. Verse 25, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm reminded of the prophet Ezekiel. God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision of a great valley. And that valley was full of old, dried-up, broken skeletons. And he told Ezekiel, he said, preach the word of God to those bones. And as Ezekiel preached the word of God to the bones, what he saw was the bones began coming together and forming skeletons again. And those skeletons became covered with flesh. And those bodies became filled with the breath of life. And the people of God stood before him, this vision of the future people of God living as a mighty host, a mighty army, a mighty kingdom. And the word of the Lord at the end of that vision was, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. That's the vision of joy that Christ had on the cross as he hung there dying for our sins. 
And speaking of dying for our sins, the very next verse, he shifts the focus back into the foreground, into his immediate future in verse 27. He says, now, now, in this moment, my soul is troubled. The word troubled there is a word related to the word we would use for revulsion. My soul is horrified, he says, as he contemplates the reality of the cross in his immediate future. Jesus wasn't only tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to turn from his mission and purpose. He certainly wrestled with it there, but we saw all the way back in the beginning of his, earth, in, in the beginning of his ministry, Satan tempted him. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, I will give you all these kingdoms if you only bow to me. I can give you these kingdoms without the cross. And Jesus refused that temptation. Here, Satan whispers in his ear again, And Jesus responds to the temptation by saying, Father, save me from this hour. That has a question mark in it in the ESV, but I think probably, and there is no punctuation in the original Greek, so that's an interpretation question. There probably shouldn't be a question mark there. That probably is a genuine prayer that he prays. Father, save me from this hour. He would say the same prayer, only with greater intensity in the Garden of Gethsemane, only a few days later. But he genuinely, understandably, is recoiling at the idea in his body and his soul of bearing the wrath of God against our sins there on the cross. My soul is troubled, he says. But he concludes by saying, Father, glorify your name. Essentially, the same thing he says in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but your will be done. And the Father responds to his commitment of obedience to his will by saying, from heaven, in an audible voice, which he only does three times during the ministry of Christ. First at his baptism by John the Baptist. Secondly, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's the third time. God speaks audibly from heaven, and he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He confirms Christ's mission, and Christ goes forward to the cross with a new resolve to do the will of the Father and to save us. And so, having endured that temptation, Christ turns his focus again to the future, and he looks again at the church to come, and he sees a universal kingdom. Look at verse 31. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is one of the great truths of the New Testament that so many Christians miss. Is that Christ came the first time. Christ came 2,000 years ago to cast out Satan. And he accomplished it at the cross and in the empty tomb. He accomplished it. He cast out the evil one. He bound Satan. He made that clear as he was casting out demons. You ever wonder about the fact that demons were being cast out left and right during the ministry of Christ and the disciples? And yet we don't see demons being cast out like that today. Why? What was going on? Well, there was an incredible spiritual warfare going on. And the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were so mystified by what was going on with Jesus and his disciples casting these demons out. They attributed it 
to the power of the evil one. They said that Jesus is doing it by Satan's power. You remember how Jesus replied to that over in Matthew 12. Listen carefully to what he says, beginning in verse 28. He says, I'm not casting out demons by Satan. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing now. That was the purpose of my coming. It was to bind the strong man and plunder his house. And thereby, by that power, he was casting out demons by the Spirit. Later on, when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons themselves, it says they came back rejoicing and exalting in their great fruit of their ministry. And in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, it talks about their response. It says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Of course, Satan had fallen. He'd been cast out of heaven before the world was created. But here, in the preaching of the gospel of the disciples, he sees Satan fall again in a very significant way. And thereby, by that power, they are casting out demons. And that all culminates in this great vision that the Apostle John gives us in Revelation 20, where he's talking about this kingdom of God. And unfortunately, too many Christians see that kingdom as something future, way off in the future. Christ came to establish the kingdom. In Revelation 20, it speaks in prophetic terms of a thousand-year kingdom. And all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They're not meant to be taken literally. The the number of thousand speaks of perfection and completion. And it's the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Christ came to establish this kingdom, and he came to bind Satan in a very real way when he came the first time through the preaching of the gospel, through his death, through the resurrection, he bound Satan, and that's what it talks about in Revelation 20. Let me read those verses to you. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to a bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. Of course, that's prophetic imagery there. It's talking about what was going on in the spiritual realm as Jesus was dying and being raised from the dead. What happened in the spiritual realm is that Satan was bound. And you may say, well, Satan sure seems to be just as active as ever. But no, he's bound in a very particular way. What it says there very clearly in verse 3 is that he is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And that's the great promise of Pentecost. That's what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the predominantly Jewish church and all the barriers came down. They spoke the gospel in every tongue. And from that point on, the kingdom of God spread to every nation, every tribe, every race, and has been going on for over 2,000 years. Jesus had joy as he hung on the cross, even as he bore the wrath of God, because he saw the fruit, the harvest that would come from his death that would reach every corner of the world, every nation, every tribe. That's why in verse 32 he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Obviously, that doesn't mean he's going to draw every single individual to himself. Obviously, that hasn't happened. What he's saying there is he's looking into the future at the church, and he's saying, I see every kind of person coming. I see Jew and Gentile. I see male and female. I see old and young. Every kind of people from every corner of the world. It's that moment that every bridegroom knows. It's that moment that you dream about from years, especially months beforehand. That vision of your bride in all of her glorious beauty appearing in the aisle as you turn around when the music plays. That's what Jesus was seeing. That's the joy of the harvest, the joy of the universal kingdom. That's the joy that got him through the wrath of the cross was he saw the beauty of the church. Not just a church that's saved from destruction, but a church that has been sanctified, beautified, glorified, and suitable to be in an eternal relationship with him. You know, Paul wanted to give some advice to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, and he wanted to make an allusion to what marriage is a, is a patterned after, what marriage is is an is a earthly example of, a, a, a testimony to. And so he alludes to the, to the marriage between Christ and the church, and he just gets caught up in the moment, and he forgets about the husband and wife, and he just talks in great, great joy, like the joy of Christ, about the beauty of the church. Listen to what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Easter is a celebration that the bride price has been paid. That Christ has paid the price And the church will become what he intended it to become, his beautiful, glorious, pure bride. I just want to call your attention briefly to verse 34. Notice what happens there. The Jewish crowds, they're listening to Jesus. They put two and two together enough to understand that he's talking about dying, even though everybody around them is saying he's the Messiah. And so they challenge Jesus' theology here. They challenge his interpretation of the Old Testament. They say, hey, the Messiah is supposed to live forever. How can you say that he's going to die? And what's striking to me is that Jesus doesn't preach a sermon on the suffering servant passages of the end of the book of Isaiah, or he doesn't go into a detailed lesson about how the Old Testament sacrifices and priesthood and temple all foreshadowed him and his work. He doesn't do any of that. He says simply, hey, you've got the light with you for just a little while longer. Believe in the light, and you'll become sons of light. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, trust me. I know you don't have it all put together. My disciples don't even have it all put together yet. I'm asking you to trust me, and I will lead you into greater light. And that's a great comfort for maybe some of you this morning. You're saying, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff. Hard for me to believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Hard for me to believe that he died for my sin. It's hard for me to believe in hell. It's hard for me to believe in the word of God. You don't have to have it all figured out before you come to Christ. That's your pride saying, hey, it's all got to make sense to me. That's what your pride will tell you. 
I need to understand all this. It's all got to fit together in my logic, and then maybe I'll believe. Jesus says, no, trust in the light. I'm giving you light. Trust in my light, and I will lead you into further light. And the resurrection proves. The resurrection is historical truth, and it proves that he is the light, the truth from God. And your trust in him will be rewarded. The hour for Jesus came when he entered Jerusalem to go to the cross. That was the purpose. That was his mission. His death and resurrection, that is the gospel. And that is the means by which we become the church, this beautiful bride of Christ. That is the one and only gospel. And churches that do not preach this gospel are just glorified hospice ministries. It should say that on their church sign, right at the bottom. It should say, this is a hospice ministry. Because you know what the mission of a hospice ministry is. It's to make dying people comfortable. We are given the word of God. We are given the one true gospel that can bring life to dead bones. That brings the message of real spiritual and physical resurrection and an eternal relationship with our creator. That is the word that we have been given. And if God is going to have mercy upon State College, it's going to be because we become fired up about taking this message of life to dying people. I'll close with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for revival and reformation in your church. We pray for a return to the true gospel and the true Jesus Christ of the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us against the assault of the evil one and the temptations of the evil one that we might stay true to this message. And Lord, use us, we pray, to bring life, real life in this world and in the world to come, life with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.